We're going to wrap up this morning the Gospel of Mark. This is our eighth week that we've been in, and as you just heard this morning, Mark continues his story with the death and the burial of Jesus. It was just as Jesus had predicted and attempted to explain to his disciples on several occasions, we saw that throughout the gospel, that when he got to Jerusalem, he would eventually be betrayed, he'd be handed over to the chief priest, he would be put to death, and he would be buried. And yet, in spite of all of his predictions, this is a crisis of epic proportions for his apostles. For in spite of those warnings and predictions, they never imagined that these events would be unfolding, at least not for their Messiah. In their mind, their Messiah doesn't die like this. And as Jesus underwent the horrific suffering and ending, his disciples are nowhere to be found. They're not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, for Mark, it is only the women who had been following Jesus who are mentioned. They're a distance away, but they're still paying attention to what's taking place. For both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the apostles, those who are closest to Jesus, just simply disappearing. And their absence is notable. It's only the Gospel of John that talks about the disciple John being there with Jesus' mother Mary at the scene. But if I could take us back full circle, what we just heard was at the end, it is not insignificant that when Jesus dies, when He breathes His last, when in a dramatic display, the curtain of the temple that would have separated the Holy of of Holies from the rest of the compound is torn from top to bottom. It is a Roman Gentile, a centurion, who confesses what Mark told us from the very first verse. Now, don't forget, as we've been talking about, who is Mark writing to? Most likely to Roman Christians who live in Rome. They would not have missed the significance that one of the final words about this man comes out of the mouth of a Roman centurion. In Mark 15, verse 39, it says, When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God which echoes Mark's very first verse of the gospel where he says, I'm about to tell you the beginning of the good news that Jesus the Messiah, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark's audience would not have lost the significance of having a fellow Gentile have such a significant moment to declare Jesus is the Son of God. But as you finished Mark chapter 15, here's what troubles me about the gospel that I find challenging, that I find a little bit suspicious isn't the right word, maybe just difficult, and that is that Mark doesn't answer for us a very important question. If you were to be a journalist, you would go to school and they would teach you right off the bat, there are important interrogatory questions that you need to ask, the who, what, when, why, how, those questions, very important as you're writing your piece. Unfortunately, Mark does not have all of the elements. You would get done with chapter 15, and in your mind, you would know a lot. You would know the who, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. You would know the what, it's his capital punishment, he's actually put to death. You would know the when, it was during Passover, the Passover week. And you would know the where, it was in Jerusalem. But what Mark leaves out is the why. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why was it necessary for him to die? Now, on the surface, there might be answers that you could give like, well, he had conflict with the Jewish leaders, collusion with the Roman authorities, he was betrayed by a disciple. But that doesn't really answer why, at least from a theological perspective. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? What's the significance of that? What does that mean for us? Why couldn't God just go, you know what, I'd rather just skip this part of it. In fact, isn't that what Jesus asked him when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? Does it, I mean, think about this. The Son of God, one of his prayers goes completely unanswered by his Father. And it is this prayer. Listen, 
if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. And what is Jesus saying? If I could get out of this crucifixion thing, I would like to. And God says, the Father says, you're going to the cross. And the question for us that Mark does not answer is, why? Not once does he try to give us any help in deciding or figuring out why. And so, what we are left with is to later authors and the later church to figure out why crucifixion. And the answer to this question has been called the doctrine of atonement. And there isn't just one singular doctrine or an explanation to why in regards to why Jesus died on the cross, but several attempts have been made to explain atonement. So let me share with you four doctrines, four theories of atonement as to why the cross. Now, most would say all of these theories are at least begin in the foundation that Jesus or that God is both loving and just that the story of the cross is born out of God's love and also out of his justice. And perhaps the most famous passage in the New Testament, this is when you go to the sporting events, you see the guy with the clown hair, he's holding up a sign, and you remember what verse is on it? It's John 3.16, which reminds us of God's love. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's something in God's crazy in love with you nature that that's why the cross. And at the same time, God is just. And because of the justice of God, it requires that for us to have that at-oneness, which is what it really means to say atonement, our sin had to be paid for. That I've screwed up, you've screwed up, I've got sin, you've got sin, and the justice of God requires something because of that sin. And the doctrine of atonement that says it is Jesus who came and paid that for us. Propitiation is the big fancy word for it. It's found in places like Romans chapter 5, verse 25, where Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. The Greek word here is hilasterion. It came to denote the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where the high priest would sprinkle blood as a propitiation or reconciliation by the blood sacrifices back to God. It has its antecedents in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 15. It says, He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. That's the Ark of the Covenant. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of their uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now what happens is Paul takes that same analogy of what the blood of those sacrifices does in terms of atoning for our sins, and now he applies it to Jesus on the cross. And he'll say this at the end of verse 25 of Romans 3, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Or it's Jesus' disciple John who will say this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if you flip over to chapter 4, verse 10, it says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It is the character and nature of God to be both loving and just. And those two things we hold in tension and we find the answer of it in Jesus. It is simply this. You deserve to be punished. Your sins have a consequence. And rather than you paying it, Jesus steps in and says, I'll take it. I will endure the punishment I will take on myself 
the consequence. And out of this, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. That when God sees you, he sees you through the prism and reflection of his son. And because of that, you've made, been made righteous. Or the author of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 will say, it's for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrew writer will remind us in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But for Jesus, chapter 9, verse 25, he didn't enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters that most holy place every year with the blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people were destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It is this understanding of the atonement. It's called the penal substitution theory of atonement. And in it, it's the idea that Jesus' death was in fact a penalty. He bore a penalty in his death but that penalty was, in fact, a substitute. It was yours. You deserved it. But he stepped in and took it for us. The second theory of atonement I'd like to share is called the ransom theory of atonement. This is the idea that when Jesus died on the cross, it was a ransom that was paid for our freedom. Essentially, this theory claims that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the same time as the fall, hence requiring justice required that God pay the devil a ransom to free us from the devil's clutches. But God tricked the devil into accepting Christ's death as a ransom for the devil didn't realize that Christ could not be held in the bonds of death. And once the devil accepted Christ's death as a ransom, this theory concludes justice was satisfied and God was able to free us from Satan's grip. This is the idea that Jesus redeemed us. He paid a price the ransom that was owed for our freedom. And ransoming, buying back war captives was a very common practice in the New Testament time. And it kind of comes from that background. And it's mentioned even in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus will say this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and what? To give his life for a ransom for many. Or Paul will say in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So the second is this ransom theory of atonement. The third one is the moral influence or the example atonement theory of atonement. And what this says is some people have a problem with God having to pay anybody. He's God. Like, if he just was to forgive sins, he could forgive sins. There's nothing else required. And there's something about if Jesus paid for the sins, then were we actually forgiven? And this theory says, no, actually, the moral influence or the example theory is that God didn't require the payment of penalty for sin, but that Christ's death was a way to show us exactly how much God loved us. That God would actually show up in human form, identify with our sufferings, even to the point of death. And out of that great love... It would, re, it would respond in us a grateful response that God would be so loving and gracious and forgiving and that Christ's own death would be for us an example of obeying God even if it leads to death. 
You get this from passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may, might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Or, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, don't you show, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? forbearance, and patience, not realizing it is God's kindness that's intended to lead you to repentance. Not His wrath, not His anger, His kindness. And where do we see the manifestation of God's greatest act of kindness and love towards us? On the cross. And there's something in that when it captures our heart, makes our heart draw to God and draw to Jesus, and it has the power to actually transform us and change us. And if you just read a straight reading of the Gospel of Mark and the narrative of the life and death of Jesus, you'll see over and over again, he naturally highlights Jesus' radical life of obedience, and this is an instruction to us on how we should live. And finally, the fourth theory of atonement, and probably my favorite, is Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ is victorious. It's the idea that what the reason why the cross was necessary was it was at the cross that Jesus delivers a defeat to Satan and the demonic, and he overcomes evil with love. This is what Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Amen. And what you see in the Christus Victor view is the, biblical, the total biblical narrative as it describes God's ongoing story of conflict with and ultimate victory over cosmic and human agents who oppose him and who threaten his creation. You'll see this idea of spiritual warfare throughout Scripture, but notably in the New Testament. So we can see things like, according to the New Testament, the central thing Jesus did was drive out the prince of this world, John chapter 12, verse 31. He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. He came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, in order to free those who all their lives were held slavery to the fear of death, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Jesus lived, died, and rose again to establish a new reign that would ultimately put all of his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. And though the strong man was fully armed, one who was stronger than he had finally arrived who could attack and overpower him, Luke 11, 21 to 22. And while the cosmic thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus came into the world to vanquish the thief so that all may have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them, Colossians 2.15. In a word, Jesus came to end the cosmic war that had been raging from time immoral and to set Satan's captives free, Luke 4.18 and Ephesians 4.8. That in the cross, the ultimate defeat of evil came surprisingly, in death. Love there defeats evil. And maybe it's a combination of all of those theories. The cross of Jesus is definitely deep enough to afford us different thoughts and different emphases, but it's the church that later has to wrestle with Jesus' death. They're put in a position of having to listen to the Holy Spirit and try to answer the question that Mark does not, and that is, 
Why? To see in this moment what began as nothing but complete disaster and tragedy to, oh my goodness, I think this is God's greatest triumph. That God was doing what no one imagined, taking on himself via his son what was necessary to deliver a blow to Satan. God was fulfilling his promise to actually enter into the history of the world and restore what he wanted from the very beginning. He was making a way for his creation to be reconciled back to him, for us to experience at oneness, atonement with the creator of the universe. And what that means is your sin cannot separate you from God. And I don't care what your sin is. It does not have power over the death of Jesus. That what Jesus does on the cross has ultimate sway and power even over your sin. And this is what we remind ourselves every week when we come to the table to take communion. That God and Jesus reconciled us back to himself and because of that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And just in case you need to hear that one more time, listen. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Amen. Not what you did yesterday. Not what kind of week you had this past week. Whatever it is that's coming to your mind right now as the greatest failing in your life, the thing that you would be totally humiliated and embarrassed to say to anyone around you, listen, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And this is what we remind ourselves when we gather at this table. We take of the bread, we take of the cup, remind ourselves of the story that Mark told us, that because of the cross and the death of Jesus Christ, a, a price has been paid that has reconciled us, who's made us at one with God. And this is why Paul could very triumphantly say in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No, no one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship? or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? And this is our story. And this is what Mark reminds us, that Jesus paid the price on the cross. So I want to invite everyone this morning, if this is your first time or you've been here 200 times, everyone is welcome to these tables to take a little bit of the bread and the cup and then to remind yourself again of this truth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. God, we give you thanks for this morning and for the story and for what it means for us that you were willing to pay an ultimate price to literally bankrupt heaven by sending the prince of heaven to this earth to die a death on a, on a cross that would ultimately deliver a blow to Satan and win for you and for your kingdom victory. And so all the things, as you paid a ransom, as you uh, substituted what was rightfully ours with your own son, we give you thanks. And now, as we take of this bread and take of this cup, remind us again how crazy love you are with us. This is in Jesus' name. Amen.